independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is a mostly listener-backed show, and we're still calling in for more support so we can reach our Patreon goal. To join us starting at a gift of $2, you can head to patreon.com slash greendreamer. Support for this episode also comes from Tonelay, a maker-led community that creates clothing, accessories, and homewares from reclaimed materials. Tonelay centers people historically sidelined by the fashion industry as leaders and creators, and and collaboration, reciprocity, and justice are some of their core values that I feel aligned with. Right now, I'm particularly looking forward to their collaboration with Cambodian-Australian designer Natalie Lee, which will be a small capsule of hand-woven, plant-dyed clothing made with regenerative fibers like kapok from trees that grow right around the weaving center that they work with in Cambodia. To check out Tonlay, you can head to tonlay.com. That's spelled T-O-N-L-E.com. Again, T-O-N-L-E.com. I often struggle with with this notion around lack of education because what that does is it denies all the knowledge that people hold that we would not necessarily have. And it's kind of saying because this knowledge doesn't fit into my paradigm of what I define as educated, therefore your knowledge is useless essentially. And I think that's super problematic. Today, we welcome Manpreet Kaur Kalra, a social impact advisor, educator, and activist working to decolonize storytelling. She navigates the intersection of impact communication and sustainable global development, and she educates using a variety of platforms, including the Art of Citizenry podcast, where she shares her nuanced and unfiltered insights on building a more just and equitable future. Mumpri, it's so lovely to have you here. I would love for you to start off by giving us a glimpse into your upbringing and background and what it was that led you to be interested in impact communication and sustainability. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. You know, one of the things you asked is like, can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing? I am from the Bay Area. My only understanding of what it means to run a business was startups. When I was younger, that was what I assumed it meant to run a business. It meant you start a company, you either get bought out or you go public. And I think that as I really got deeper into the industry and that space, I realized how these systems are really broken. And there was a point of burnout that I experienced and I felt that I was not staying true to what 
the type of work that I find passion in, which is, again, that thread of activism. And so I decided that I wanted to kind of let my creativity guide me. And I recognized that I had the honest privilege and opportunity to be able to take leave my job take two months and really understand supply chains. That was my big thing. I really want to understand supply chains. Why does exploitation exist? To understand exploitation, especially in manufacturing, I felt like it was important to understand supply chains. And so I actually went to India, which is where I have a lot of family. I was actually born in India, came to the U.S. when I was six months old. And uh, a lot of family there, stayed with family and went into different villages to understand really what it means to be part of a global supply chain on the ground. And through that journey, I realized a few things. One thing is that I went in with a very privileged assumption that me, a person with absolutely zero experience around manufacturing, could be someone who can create this like vision for a better solution to supply chains. Because I actually was like, you know, I'm going to start my own social enterprise. and I'm going to start my own venture. And this is going to be great. I have no experience in any of this. And I'm just going to do it. And it's fine. And I'm going to go work in these communities that I feel like society has told me need my help. So of course, they need my help. And I went in with this with a lot of my own preconceived notions about communities and cultures of the global south, even though they were communities and cultures that are close to my heart, they're communities and cultures that I identify with as well. But my lived experience is just so different. And so I went in with these assumptions. And I realized my own blind spots through that process. And I also realized the ways in which power has created these exploitative structures and the power dynamics that are set out to build systems that when we think we're doing good, we can often do so much more harm. And that really led me to do what I do now, which is working as a social impact advisor. And I really, in my work, try to work with businesses and organizations to rethink some of the assumptions we have around the communities and cultures that we are working in and approach those conversations with cultural humility, which is essentially this idea of taking a step back and recognizing that we have so many stereotypes that have been ingrained to us about others. And to really understand someone's experience, we have to let go of those stereotypes and we have to become a learner and let others guide and lead the conversation and let them tell their story versus us trying to assume we know their story. And that has really been what has led my work into this intersection of anti-racism and what I like to now refer to as really decolonizing storytelling. And recently at Art of Citizenry, you explored ways in which volunteerism, may it be faith-based or not, is a manifestation of colonization, reinforced by mm -hmm. power structures rooted in imperialism. And like you mentioned, we're often trained to think that volunteer work by nature is good because it's rooted in giving and helping. But what is the oh, significance yeah. of contextualizing it with the history of colonialism and imperialism? 
volunteerism and heropreneurship very much go hand in hand. So what I've noticed is a trend genuinely, and I mean, my own story is probably one of the every social entrepreneur story is like I went and I traveled for two months and I saw poverty and I discovered and I wanted to change it and I'm going to solve these global issues with my business. That is a very common narrative, right? And I've noticed that so many of these stories actually stem from this place of genuine desire to do good. I mean, none of us are really going on these goals of wanting to solve global issues with this desire to do more harm. We come at it with this intention to do well, do good in the world. But oftentimes the reason it falls flat is we feel that we know all the answers and we impose our own understanding of what is right and what is wrong on other communities. And don't actually take, make the space to listen to them and let them lead change, right? I think that's so important. And so volunteerism, I think both volunteerism and heropreneurship, when we talk about colonialism, I think we often use the word colonization and colonialism without actually understanding what those mean, right? So I want to take a moment first to define what colonization actually looks like. Right, colonization, and I'm going to talk in the context of India in particular, is essentially this we have a group of people, we have a country that goes into another country and imposes their worldview and tells the people of that community that, hey, everything you believe is wrong, what we believe is right, you're going to practice what we believe, and you are now under our rule. You respond to us. Any agency you have no longer exists. Colonialism is taking power away from people. It's denying agency. And we need to recognize that that is such a critical part of colonial characteristics. And we see that manifesting oftentimes through the way that we approach volunteerism and heropreneurship because we go in with these assumptions that we know what's right and that these poor communities, because they are, in our understanding, not living the way that we would live, therefore, they don't have it figured out. And the truth is, if we really, really want to dismantle systems of oppression, if we really want to solve things like, like solve poverty, right? If we really want to do any of that, we have to first come to terms with why these communities are the way they are. And quite frankly, the reality is that the reason so many of these communities are struggling is because they're struggling to rebuild after years and years of extraction and their natural resources being depleted, their culture being extracted, their language being appropriated, their identity being basically denied. And I think that it's so important to recognize how we got here, because unless we first break that down, so many of these very do-good travels or do-good businesses can't really do the work that they're setting off to do. Because we have to first know what systems we're operating in and why we are the way we are. Anti-racism is a concept that is about really breaking down the systems, policies, and 
attitudes of oppression and why we are the way we are, right? It's really about breaking down systems, policies, and attitudes. And if we want to really create sustainable change, then we have to understand why the systems are built the way they're built, how the policies reinforce the systems that continue to manifest, and how those policies shape attitudes. On a related note, there are a lot of charities in quote-unquote developing countries that focus on supporting education, implying that a lot of these countries are the ways they are because there's a lack of education. On this front as well, it's also important to raise the question of what education, because I think a lot of times what these charities refer to as people being uneducated is people are uneducated from institutions shaped by Western curriculums and Western ideologies. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. I think that so much of how we think about what is success, what defines success, is shaped by our Western ideology of what does someone who is educated look like? What does education mean? What does success mean? And how do we perceive knowledge, right? I think that that's one of the main things is I often struggle with with this notion around lack of education because what that does is it denies all the knowledge that people hold that we would not necessarily have. And it's kind of saying because this knowledge doesn't fit into my paradigm of what I define as educated. Therefore, your knowledge is useless, essentially. And I think that's super problematic is we have to recognize that. And, you know, we see this, it's kind of this understanding is like we go into situations with our own understanding of what is right, what is wrong, right? And there's the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is essentially this idea that because a problem is further away, it seems so much more simpler to solve than problems that are closer to home, right? So it feels easier to solve poverty in a country far away than it is to solve economic disparities right in your own neighborhood. And that's a problem, right? That is actually an issue. And I think that oftentimes we don't recognize that access to education exists here as well. And we have to think about, okay, what do we even define as education when we go into communities other than our own? And if we have an understanding of what is education within our own community, why aren't we then actively working towards creating more accessibility for our own neighbors, for those who are living within our own proximity, whose experiences we can probably more directly impact? Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, I guess, imposing our ideas on other people, you've said before that the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals has an underlying presumption of a global north and a global south and how that reinforces yeah. the idea of saviorism. So how would you just deconstruct this framing of understanding the world as it is today? The global north, global south dichotomy 
essentially is the newer way of saying third world or developing versus developed, right? And so that is kind of the new accepted terminology. Now, the unfortunate reality is that terminology still has a top-down approach to power. And so one of the things I always want to recommend people to do is to actually look up the Brandt line. It's a really interesting map that you can find. And essentially what it does is it paints a line that goes across and then loops down, you know, on the globe. So you go across on the globe and then it loops down, brings in Australia and then goes back up. That is the Brandt line. That is how we define the global north, global south. Now, there's a formula that people argue is and is, in fact, how the global north, global south is calculated. But I think that that visual representation is just so powerful. Now, there's so much to unpack here. So the first thing being that one of the key issues that I often see with concepts, I mean, I think the sustainable development goals are fantastic in concept. However, we have to still recognize if we want to create sustainable change, as I mentioned earlier, we have to recognize what systems we are working in and how they were built. Who made those systems, right? At the end of the day, that's so important to recognize. And I think that that's where it's important to recognize the power that's at play. So when we look at the sustainable development goals, what you'll realize is that there is a assumption that the global south is far behind on really achieving these goals. But they can achieve these goals if communities of the global north start supporting countries of the global south. And what this assumption basically allows for is voluntourism, heropreneurship to continue to manifest. And the thing that I think is just so critical to recognize when we talk about this global north, global south construct is it doesn't take into account the the amount of harm that these communities have had to navigate because of years of colonialism and colonization and extraction. And so oftentimes, right, we also have to recognize that the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, are written in a very Western construct. And that Western construct imposes by the nature, our own understanding and beliefs on these communities. So the other thing that I think is really important is if you look at how we define human rights under the United Nations definition of human rights, the Declaration of Human Rights came out essentially after World War II and was written predominantly by the winning countries. And so now you have the Declaration of Human Rights, and the way it was written is so ambiguous that it does allow for imperialism to continue, 
It allows for communism to continue and it allows for capitalist structures to continue. I mean, it is interesting if you start really peeling back the layers of how it's been written. It's so ambiguous, but it's still a very powerful document. But we have to recognize the shortcomings of anything that we have put on a pedestal. Same with the SDGs, same with the Human Rights Declaration. I mean, all of these systems, at the end of the day, we have to recognize that power plays a role in these conversations. And power influences how certain systems and policies are built and how they then continue to manifest and go into action. And then they, as a result, influence the way we as individuals continue to allow those systems to exist. Not necessarily in ways where we're actively trying to, but they have been baked in and normalized to the point where it is the socially accepted norm. And to expand upon storytelling by social enterprises and charity work, you've said that from saviorism to poverty porn, for decades, storytelling has become part and parcel of marketing and fundraising efforts. And mission-driven products are often sold using some level of someone's trauma, end quote. So what are some concrete examples of saviorist narratives of nonprofit or social enterprise work that have ended up doing more harm than good? And how should those working in these spaces navigate the line between extractive storytelling, ultimately rooted in things like viewership, fundraising, and sales, and storytelling rooted in actual collaboration and reciprocity that do not uphold but might even help to dismantle these exploitive power dynamics? Most definitely. So I think that there's a few things. The first thing you asked is how how have I seen this play out? And I would say I see it play out a lot in the social enterprise space, right? So I, I work a lot in the fair trade social impact space and this idea that transparency means knowing the stories of the people who are making your products. And when I talk about the stories, I mean literally details about those people's lives. And we see this come out really in the idea of sharing these stories of trauma. And I think, you know, one of the things I talk about often is what does consent look like in storytelling? And there's this idea that, well, okay, this maker or this artisan has told us that we can share their story about domestic violence about sexual violence, about abuse in the household. And we can share all these details about them, put them on swing tags, put them on our website, put it in our print marketing material. We have their permission. But the thing that we need to recognize is consent is fluid. Okay, so if someone is maybe comfortable right now sharing their story, circumstances might change and they may not be so comfortable sharing their story down the road. And the issue that occurs in this situation is once someone's personal life is out there through the way that we tell stories in the social impact space, it's really hard to take those stories back. And so I think it's time that we really rethink the stories that we tell and what we think about when we say transparency. Why is it 
that we need to know about people's personal life details in order to feel that we have transparency around how a business operates. That's not what transparency should look like, nor is it transparency. Transparency is accountability. It's about businesses being willing to tell you the ways that they are proactively working to really support and nurture the people that they're working with. And so I think that oftentimes storytelling is used as a tool for transparency. And I really do think we need to shift that paradigm. The other thing I've noticed is oftentimes these stories reinforce stereotypes around communities of color. So another example that I often think about is this idea of human trafficking. Okay, So human trafficking, especially when we think about it in the lens of the social impact space, when you see photos of people who have been trafficked, Right. When we're looking at talking about storytelling and brands are saying, look, by buying this product, you are helping this person who has been trafficked. You are doing so much great good. Right. And you'll put a photo of a person and you'll talk about their story. I want to first take a pause and recognize the fact that if that person lived here in the United States, we would never do that because we would recognize that we are potentially putting that person at great danger. So for some reason, though, we feel that because they live far away, that it's okay to share their photo and share their story of trauma, that that's totally fine. So I want us to just recognize that that is not okay. That is fundamentally problematic. And that is, by all means, how power plays out. So that's one thing. But You know, when we talk about human trafficking, oftentimes when brands and organizations and nonprofits are talking about trafficking, they're always putting photos of communities of color in the global south. But human trafficking exists in every single zip code of the United States. And yet somehow those are not the communities that we see when we talk about and think about trafficking. And that's what I mean by how our stories, especially our stories as communities of color, get shaped not by us, but by the way our stories are marketed. And that is how internalized racism continues to occur. Because we start seeing ourselves and our communities that way. And so that's why I think it's so important that we really think about the role colonization and power has in the way that we see, hear, tell stories. Because we need to really recognize that that power needs to be in our hands. And the only way that that power can be in our hands as communities of color that are often shaped or painted and with this paintbrush of stereotypes, the only way that we can really control those stories is by also calling out when we see great harm happening. And I think that that's for me, what drives my work is it's painful. It's really painful for me to always see women that look like me being painted in a particular way. I mean, I've seen it play out in my own life. 
my first fair trade conference, every single person I interacted with, people asked me what artisan group I worked with. They're, they couldn't even fathom the idea that I could be someone who is not an artisan and potentially lives in the United States. I mean, it's, it's wild to me, right? Because that's when that is the whole global view that you've come to accept, that's when it becomes really problematic and it reinforces stereotypes about communities. It reinforces how we see people and how we see power and how we see the power someone else has and the agency they have. Human touch, black ash on the living Wayless glass goes passing To pivot into your more recent work, I know you've been helping to organize in Seattle in support of India's ongoing farmer protests. And we had Nishant mm -hmm. Chopra, who runs a regenerative farm recently on the show, who gave his perspectives uh, from living in the south of India in a region where he said many farmers still retain traditional farming practices and knowledge, and where he said people aren't as involved in the protests compared to farmers in the North, who had been most affected by the Green Revolution, which meant the introduction of and reliance on agrochemical intensive farming. You personally have roots in the northern region of Punjab and actively are engaged with the protests on the ground there. So I wonder if you could speak to the relationship between the Green Revolution and the farmers most impacted by the bills and why that may be the case. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I really appreciate you taking a moment to really recognize and understand that, you know, even in India, there's so much diversity of experience, right? So as you mentioned, so my ancestral roots are in Punjab. My family's in Punjab. You know, my, my ancestors were displaced as a result of the British dividing Punjab between India and Pakistan. And uh, so my ancestral homeland is in what is now Pakistan. And you know, I talk to my parents about this often is how amazing it would be to be able to go visit the village that my ancestors are from. And maybe one day we will, but it's one of those things that just hits really close to home. So I appreciate you recognizing that. So to your point and your question, the Green Revolution and how it's influencing the farmers' protest, right? So the Green Revolution, essentially, I, I want us to all recognize, and I'm sure that your listeners probably have this understanding, but I always find it important to remind people that the Green Revolution did not start in India, and the Green Revolution is happening currently in Africa, right? Like these are all things that I want everyone to recognize is not something of the past. This is currently happening. But when we talk about the Green Revolution and when we talk about its impact on farming and generational farming knowledge, it's important to recognize that it was very much the Green Revolution is an export of the United States. And it is an export of American scientists, 
American, you know, the Rockefeller Group, the Rockefeller Foundation. It is very much a result of international interference. And what the Green Revolution did is it introduced high yielding seeds. And it took what was the traditional farming methods of India, and especially in, so the Green Revolution in India started in Punjab. And it took the traditional farming methods of Punjab and replaced them with these high yielding seeds. So you took this diversity of crops that were native to Punjab, and you replaced them with high yielding seeds of wheat and paddy. Okay, paddy is rice unhusked. And what ends up happening is Punjab is not by any means a place where rice would make sense to harvest, because for rice to be harvested, you actually have to have shallow water. But that's not the case in Punjab. Punjab, the name Punjab is the land of five rivers. And when Punjab was essentially, you know, as the British left and they split up Punjab between Pakistan and India, it continued to be split up once it was part, the part that was left in India continued to be split up and it got split up into Haryana as well. And I think it's very important to recognize that what was once a very fertile land over the years through first the partition and then the green revolution continue to be diminished of its natural resources. And so the green revolution by all means was essentially this moment in Punjab's history where you took generational knowledge of agriculture and replaced it with these agrochemicals that essentially the farmers had no training or knowledge on how to use because this was all new. It was forced on them. And it was essentially this idea of you fight famine by overproducing, right? So you want to fight famine. We don't want to have famine in the country. So we're going to take this region and we're going to put all of this high yielding seeds. We're going to create a lot of wheat and rice. Cool. Awesome. So you've got this overproduction of wheat and rice, rejection for all other farming. And in order to really incentivize wheat and rice, you have an MSP, which is the minimum support price. It's essentially this idea that at the bare minimum, you will make a certain amount for the rice and wheat that you produce. Now, the issue with the Green Revolution that I think we have to recognize is and I was getting at this a little earlier, is you have farmers who, who know the land, who understand the land, have a relationship with the land, and have generational knowledge on how to care for the land, and are basically being told you have to reject all of that and use these particular seeds and these particular pesticides and fertilizers in order for you to now continue to farm. And so you're pushed towards using these items, you start using them. And what ends up happening, which I think for me is really this cherry on top is Punjab has become and the regions that have that were impacted by the Green Revolution in particular, have become really this hotbed for cancer, for birth defects, 
for farmer suicides because farmers are in this cycle of immense debt because they're having to, in order for them to continue to farm, they have to invest in those high yielding seeds. They have to invest in fertilizers and they are buying all of these items at retail price, not wholesale at retail price. And as a result, they're in such immense death that they've so many have reached the point where they have resorted to taking their own life. And that's problematic. And now you tack on these three new bills that essentially take away any support blanket that existed. And these farmers have essentially recognized that we can either die protesting or we're going to lose everything anyways if these bills continue as is. Yeah. And what you just mentioned really touches back on the points we mentioned earlier in terms of questioning this idea of development and advancement as defined by the West. So for example, with these people coming in saying, you know, these are the ways that you should be farming and you're not educated because you haven't studied, you know, how to do it this way and really questioning Mm -hmm. the land-based and place-based knowledges that they had that is a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. But besides the farmer protest being a historic one that has made some headlines around the globe, I'm curious about whether this has any implications for our global food systems or what parallels it has with the struggles of other farmers around the world against the same big agricultural giants and powerful forces. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things I've heard people say is, how can people in the West be so up in arms about these new bills when in reality you have the same thing happening in your own country, which is incredibly true, right? Like we have privatization of agriculture very much in the United States, right? That is why when you're driving through the Midwest, you are driving through cornfields back and back and back again, right? Like that is what We have seen this happen. And the same thing has happened in India, where if you go into regions like Punjab, you are driving through wheat and rice. That is it. Okay. So we've taken biodiversity as we know it is what is at risk. We've seen that happen in Punjab. The natural diverse agricultural diversity that once was there has been absolutely replaced by two staples. And we've seen that in the United States. Agricultural diversity is really hard to come by, right? I I was talking to small farmers in Ohio, and they have the exact same experience where their farming has really come down to farming what they are asked to, which is corn, right? Because corn gets repurposed, repackaged into all these other items. And when we think about the global food chain, right, what we have to recognize is farming, if we really get back to the way farming is meant to be, it's meant to be communal. It's meant to be about your community. It's meant to be about supporting each other, right? One of the most beautiful things I think about is I was talking to someone before the Green Revolution. The way farming existed in Punjab was 
you would have farmers, you would have people who were helping take care of the land, you would have people who would have different roles in the community. And those roles would support each other. And it would be very regenerative in many ways and restorative. And the unfortunate reality is that that notion of farming being communal has slowly over the years been replaced by private interests and the privatization of agriculture. And we really have to take the step back and recognize how are we being complicit within our own communities and letting these systems continue to operate. So for me, I, I live in Seattle. I live where Amazon is, right? And, and where Gates Foundation is, which is Gates Foundation is actually leading the green revolution in Africa at the moment. And in fact, if you go to the Gates Foundation and you go to their visitor center, they have a whole exhibit on high yielding seeds. So this is not just a, oh, conspiracy theory, the Gates Foundation is doing this. No, this is very much being led by the Gates Foundation as well right now. So essentially what we have to recognize is that the way that these new methods of farming have become so exploitative is that they are essentially demanding and asking and really pushing for more production at a very fast rate. So you, instead of allowing for the earth to produce crops the way it's supposed to, we essentially are demanding so much more at such fast rates that it's really depleting the earth of its natural resources and in turn also harming the farmers themselves. And to really see the results of like an unregulated marketplace and to really see the results of what it means to demand product at such a fast rate, we can, we don't have to look any further than fast fashion, right? When you look at India's garment industry itself, we know that it's been built on the exploitation of workers by large international fast fashion companies. Why can you buy a cotton t-shirt for $5? Because essentially, at the end of the day, everyone from that cotton farmer to the garment worker is being paid pennies and all in an effort to maximize profits because you're producing at a rate that is absolutely astonishing and harmful to the planet and to people that what ends up happening is out of this need to maximize profits, what you're doing is you're hurting the people at the end of the day. You're hurting and creating this need for more and more and more, and it's developing more waste, right? So when you have a free market and you have high competition, at the end of the day, there's always going to be people who are willing to have a lower price. And therefore, you're going to increase competition. And competition is essentially what's driving our agricultural industry. It's what's driving fast fashion, and it's what allowing people who are at the top 
to continue making money and those at the bottom to continue to be exploited by these systems that have been put in place. So when we talk about what does this mean for the larger global economy and the larger global community, we have to recognize that these issues, the issues that we are seeing these farmers protesting about very much exist within our own communities as well. They're built on this need to constantly be asking for more. And they're built on this need of furthering the exploitation of those who are already at the bottom and are being exploited at every step of how we operate and how we continue to operate as a society. Hmm. And as we bring back this idea of decolonizing storytelling and really examining power within that, what have you been paying attention to in terms of the media narratives revolving around the farmer protests? And what should people reading about the current event from various sources keep in mind? A lot of the media narrative that is surrounding the farmers' protest is very much being controlled by the government. And that is not unique to the farmers' protest that has existed throughout India's history whenever it's come to conflicts with marginalized groups. And I think that when it comes to how these stories are being told, we've noticed that with the farmers' protest, anyone who is dissenting is essentially painted as an anti-national. Anyone who is dissenting is being painted as a terrorist. Anyone who is dissenting is considered a threat to the country. And the reality is, I mean, I would argue that people who are questioning the systems at play are not questioning the systems at play because they don't love their country. They love their country. That's why they want it to do better and be better and treat others better and treat them better. And so when I think about the farmers protest and how we can be better informed about what is happening on the ground, I think it's really important to check your sources. And most importantly, to really give yourself the time and space to understand the historical context behind the farmers' protest. Because at the end of the day, when we think about the farming industry, the story is the same across the board, right? We're seeing this in communities across the world where small farmers are essentially struggling to stay afloat because they have been caught up in these very exploitative systems that are demanding so much from them. And so if we really, really want to understand the nuance behind the farmers' protest in India in particular, we also have to understand the history and the historical context around the communities that are protesting and are at the forefront of this protest. Because there is layers and layers of oppression that are playing a role in the narrative that is being shaped. And, you know, I think about the Green Revolution and I think about its impact on Punjab in particular. One of the 
biggest costs of the green revolution at the end of the day was that it's no longer Punjab is no longer to self able to self sustain agriculturally because it is so it's been put into this cycle of wheat and rice farming that any other produce or any other fruits or vegetables are just not possible to farm and so what really hardens me is to hear about the small farmers that are trying to challenge these systems and i really encourage everyone to understand where you're getting your news from but also see how am i seeing this play out within my own community because chances are the farmers even within your own community are struggling because they too have been caught into these systems that are incredibly exploitative and taking away so much of their livelihoods and this dependence that they have on these agrochemicals is really costing them their livelihoods and lives. And the last thing I wanted to ask you is just what else do you feel caught to share about the protest, about how people might be able to support whether they are on the ground or not in India? And yeah, just anything else I didn't get to ask you about that you wanted to leave with our audience? As far as the protest in India, I think that one of the biggest things I just want people to recognize is one of the notions that has been really tossed around in regards to the protest as well, isn't a free market essentially a good thing? So why are people up in arms if the government is just pushing for a free market to exist? And the thing that I think is just so important is to recognize that capitalism at its core is built on the existence of inequities. And the goal of any business operating in a capitalist society is to maximize its profit, right? So at the end of the day, corporations are going to be prioritizing profit over people. And that only ends up hurting those workers. And so when we talk about maybe the farmers protest or global development, we have to recognize that there's so much complexity, there's so much nuance to why communities operate the way they operate, why systems have been built the way they have been built, and to really deconstruct those systems and to really understand why certain problems exist, we have to peel back those complex layers in which there is a lot of nuance. And that nuance cannot be ignored. It's when we ignore nuance that we are essentially creating solutions that do not actually solve the root of why a problem exists. And so when we talk about global economic development, when we talk about creating more opportunities in certain communities, when we're talking about the farmers' protest, at the end of the day, the issue is there's no cookie-cutter approach. 
And we need to recognize that there is so much more complexity. And it really requires us deconstructing a lot of layers of deep-seated cultural and often even religious influences. And so if we really, really want to create change, we have to talk about power and the various ways power shows up. It's not always economic. It's not always on the basis of race. It's not always on the basis of religion. It is all of those things. Power is intersectional and it shows up in a variety of forms depending on the context of the situation that we are in. And so if you are interested in really understanding more about the farmers protest, I really encourage you to just surround yourself with information, read more, learn more, really try to understand the real economics and background of how the farmers got to the point at which they feel that they need to protest in order to secure their livelihoods. And so we have to understand all of that. And one of the things I would say is if if you want to support the farmers protest, I highly recommend looking into organizations like Calsa Aid and also just honestly helping create more awareness, host conversations, um, really just take the time to educate yourself. And most importantly, I would say, see how these issues are occurring within your own communities. We cannot expect each of us to know the ins and outs of why problems exist in every single scenario, right? We cannot all understand every problem that exists in the world. But what we can do is really think about, okay, if this is something that's happening, how am I seeing these same issues play out in my community? And what is something I can do to lead change within my own community? And that's what I want to encourage everyone to think about. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Awesome. So I have two. My all-time favorite book of poems is Salt by Naira Wahid because it's beautiful. it really beautifully captures power and the way that we tell our stories and the power of us telling our stories. And then the second book is one that I recently started to read called How to Do Nothing, uh, Resisting the Attention Economy. And what I like about it is it's actually made me really reflect on the way in which my creativity is sometimes hindered by social media, essentially. Hmm. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Yeah, so... I think that this one for me is I tell myself less, but I do like it's more action oriented. I believe 
it's more about who I surround myself by. A lot of my work is incredibly heavy. So I'm working to actively make space for things that give me joy, like spending time with my partner and our dog, going to the farmer's market, being out in nature, spending time with my plants, knitting. So those are ways that I help myself stay positive. And what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? I think at the moment, for me, it's this rising consciousness and willingness to create space for critical discourse that is interdisciplinary. I think that that's incredibly important. And that is what gives me so much hope and joy for the planet at this particular moment. Mm. Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Munpreet's work, you can head to www.artofcitizenry.com, and you can also follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Munpreet Kalra. Munpreet, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. This was such an insightful and comprehensive conversation. We covered so much, so just really appreciate you and your time. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Absolutely. I would say don't be shy of having conversations that are nuanced. That is where the most growth happens. And that is often what is missing when we try to have really complex conversation on online mediums. And I think that creating space for nuance and the gray is just so important because that's where we can create true sustainable change. This episode was brought to you by our community and listener patrons. To support this independent media platform, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. The song featured in this episode is There Is Still Time by Laura Palika. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production management intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. We're deeply grateful to have you and for your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode. 